I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Ian Andrews. Ian Andrews is back on Close Reads. We're here. So exciting. Old friend Ian Andrews, recurring guest, special guest. Uh, We're here to discuss Amortol's 2016 novel, A Gentleman of Moscow. Uh, And Tim, Tim's Tim's a busy guy. He's got this, this. this job, he got a promotion, and he's all so his life is just more stuff, complicated. Like, uh-huh. He's wed, Nuptials. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nuptials. And so, so Tim just said to us, and he we did play. He did plan this ahead. He said, "I think early in the fall, I could use a close reads break." And so we turned to a to an old friend, to our trusty, Ian. yeah, exactly, <laughs> trusty exactly. backup. First off the bench, I love it. So Ian man. Andrews is here. Ian, Ian, how's it going, dude? <laughs> it's going great. It's going great. It's fall, so the routine has settled in. We're starting to spend long evenings reading books and and studying. And it's good to be a school teacher in the fall. School. School started. That's what it has to do with fall. You don't read books in the evenings in the summertime? No. Wow. This is you just got you just that's a strong word. Get out. That's a strong word. But I know you are doing, you're no well. longer welcome here. <laughs> That's my role, man. I'm here to be kicked. I'm here to be punched. Uh, oh, okay. yeah, see now, okay. just like yeah, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> see, yeah, gang up on a brother. Okay, so <laughs> Ian, let's do a little bit of uh, feedback from you on this book. I guess a little bit of a sense of what your familiarity with it is. I know that Heidi, you've read this before, so we'll let you talk about it in a second. But oh, before good. we really awesome. dig in proper, we give a little bit of information on tolls, which we'll continue to do throughout the, the show. And we give a little bit of information on the publication of this book. What's your uh, familiarity with it? This is going to be fun because I know almost nothing about this. Um, I heard of it first from my sister who read it okay. on a whim and loved it. And she came to me and to Emily, my wife, and said, you guys have got to read this book and loaned us her copy, which has then been sitting on our bookshelf for like a couple of years. Um, so this was an excuse to finally get to something that's been on the must read list for a while, but I didn't really nice. do any research in advance of it. I, I don't know much about it. I just sort of dove in and I got to say at this stage, this is the right kind of book to just dive in knowing nothing. Like he just, hmm. he just reaches out and embraces you and it's warm and um, engaging. And I was, I was in uh, within the first couple of pages. So mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it immensely. Are you a Russian, are you a connoisseur of Russian books, but all things Russian in general? What's your perspective on, uh, I guess this is a complicated time to ask this question. What's your perspective on Russia? (laughs) (laughs) My perspective on Russia, man, they're artists or something else. That's my perspective on, on Russia. Um, I spent a lot of time in college with Dostoevsky, love, love me some Dostoevsky and recently finished a long in-depth reading of War and Peace. Um, so I've got a little bit of Tolstoy to my name. So yeah, I like the I like the Russians and and the in particular in War and Peace, the culture, um, the things that make that when the Russians talk about themselves, the things that make them Russian are uh, distinct and unique and and attractive. Hmm. It's a cool culture. I like it. What are you guys? You guys are doing a Russian novel right now on the various podcasts that you're doing. What's the just the, we can do a little plug here for some of the things that you're involved with. You're obviously a a center for lit guy. Right. And you guys have a bunch of podcasts. So what are you guys doing over there right now? And then we're going to turn it over to Heidi. Yeah. So we are currently releasing a new season of our, our main show, Bibliophiles, which is Bibliophiles at the Movies. Um, we're talking about literary adaptations for the screen. What makes a good one? What makes a bad one? Um, and just sort of discussing the differences between the genres. So that that was really fun to record. And I'm excited to release it out into the world. I think we're our third episode's coming out um, today. 
Uh, but then our other show, How to Eat an Elephant, which owes much in terms of format to to this show, Close Reads, we take up very, very long books, the kinds of books that intimidate people. I usually use either War and Peace or Moby Dick as an example of that kind of mm. book. And we walk through it a, a small bite at a time and just discuss and make sure that our, our followers can not lose, not lose their way in, in mm. a really big, thick tome. So the one that you were referring to is we just, we finished War and Peace after, I think it was 22 years. months. 23 months or something like that. It took us a very long time, uh, but it was so fun. I mean, getting to, it was my first experience with Tolstoy. So getting to do it um, in a community setting and to discuss every few pages was, was really wonderful. So can't recommend war and peace enough. And if you want some help reading it, we walked through it. Nice. Yeah. Check out all the center for lit goings and, and I was going to say goings on, but I guess goings and comings. Um, <laughs> uh, Heidi, this book for you, this is your second time reading it. It is. Yes. And you've read everything that he's written, right? All I three have. novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what's your what was your uh, your response after reading it for the first time? Um, this was the first book of Immortals that I read, and I just found it delightful. I I love the contemplation. I love the subject. I love his writing. Uh, he's just a master of the craft. And throughout his novels, he seems to have challenged himself to have the whole, that the whole novel take up the tone of its main protagonist. And I find that just a cool concept as an author for orienting your writing and somehow he manages to do it. I don't know how he does. Probably less with the least amount of success in Lincoln Highway, but certainly with, in this novel for sure, achieves that. Um, And I just, I just find it like delightful is the word I would describe it. Like, I really love reading this book. I can't wait to talk about it. There is a lot of depth to it, uh, but there's also just like a lot of breadth and surface area. And it's just fun. Like Ironic given the subject matter. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't feel like a Russian novel at all. Of course, it's not written by a Russian. It takes as its subject, Russia and the loss of tradition in Russia. And that's the whole contemplation of the whole novel. Um, And it's wonderfully written. I just, I can't, I I just really like it. Can I ask Heidi, does that mean that he he actually substantially changes his writing style novel to novel? I think he does. Yeah, for sure. Rules of Civility is his is my favorite of his novels and it's completely different in tone, but the writing, like you can tell it's the same author, but the tone is very different. Um, so it, yeah, you should definitely read that one. Well, and then Lincoln Highway, yeah, he jumps from Highway. perspectives mm-hmm. over and over again. I think that's probably the least successful of his right. of his books because, well, I don't know. It's my, it's my great old, idea. I think you just need a bit more editing. <laughs> my, uh, my, one of my big pet peeves, I've said it multiple times here, I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, Ian, is that when authors write from different perspectives, all of those perspectives, all of those points of view, all of those voices sound the same. And that book drifts into that a little bit. And I think one of the things that he pulls off so well is that there is a sense of voice in this character, even though it's not a first-person book, Mm -hmm. it's still the narrator and the character are, you know, it's a very close third person. And he's very good at that. I think he's just he he pulls it off so well here. I think the multiple perspectives, he that skill that he has that shows up here falls a little bit more flat um, in The Lincoln Highway. But that book, his books are so literary, like he, in the sense that he is interested in literary things. So that's one thing we'll need to 
need to be looking out for. Hey, before we get any further though, I need to tell you guys, I'll tell you guys about a, about a little something because um, I, I let's, let's play, let's play a game here. Uh, Ian, let's pretend that you live in, um, you um, live in the East coast or okay. you need an excuse to come to the East coast. Can you, can you uh, just kind of like play that game with me for a second? Sure. Yeah, fine. I, I okay. So, so you're a person who lives on the East coast. I don't know, say like Maryland or Washington, DC or North Carolina. Okay. Well, Cersei, you remember our old friends at the Cersei Institute? Yes. They have a regional conference October 7th and 8th, and it's going to be in the East Coast. So if this is you, Where? you, someone who's living here or wanting to go there, this would be a great Where thing for you to go to. Be? It's going to be at Dominion Classical School in Sterling, Virginia, which Sterling. is in like the Northern, Northern Virginia area. Yeah. Okay. So just wanted to let you know about that. So like Ian, for example, if maybe you wanted to come visit us and then also potentially go to this event, like the, the, this could potentially work out well for you. Heidi could tag along. I mean, like maybe when you're flying over the country, you could just do a quick pit stop in Denver Pick Heidi and, up. or Colorado Springs or any kind of Colorado city. Yeah. She could probably make a quick drive to just land your helicopter. Yeah. Let her kind of like pull her up. Like, like the one first of those, step uh, for all of us is to go shake the money tree out back. Right. For a what? sufficient length of time to make all that happen. I mean, yeah, I buy a helicopter, you have two like. kidneys. That's why God gave us two kidneys. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what That's the problem is. That's a great point. I don't know why I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I'm going to tell you about some of the speakers that are going to be at this event just to make it even more appealing. So obviously there's Andrew Kern. Oh, uh, Heidi White's going to be there. So, she needs to get there anyway. Oh. So that's why I was thinking, I like, why don't you, Do you just drop your helicopter? Valid. Your valid. Yeah. That's right. You could pick her up like <laughs> one of those rescue um, things up with a helicopter, you know, like one of those rescue boards. Tracy Lee Simmons is going to be there. Vegan Garoyan is going to be there. And there's a bunch of other speakers. Ooh. Josh Gibbs. Yeah. Vegan Garoyan. That would be yep. fun. Maybe you want to hear Josh say something controversial that you didn't read on the Cersei blog. Slash, slash yep. brilliant. Yep. Slash uh, brilliant. And humorous. Always both, though. Yeah, Always exactly. Both. So this is, this is the copy of the event. I wanted to read it. The psalmist expressed his intense desire to see God's face, even complaining that God hid his face from him. God told the psalmist to seek his face. The worshiper and the worshiped came together. Seek ye my face, thy face, Lord, I will seek, right? So those, that's the, the lines from scripture. On the other hand, God told Moses, with whom he spoke face to face, you, can't, you cannot see my face, for there, no, there shall no man see me and live. Seems a little complicated, right? So the past couple of years have reminded us how important the human face is, right? Whether we were having to teach online exclusively or people wearing masks or kids, you know, all the things that came with the last couple of years. So that got the, the Cersei team thinking, we're the image of God. Does masking the face mask that image? Have we lost more than we realize? So this is not an event that's meant to be political, but it is meant to say like, what are these things that we're assuming mean? A baby seeks its mother's eyes even before it seeks to be fed. And no wonder because a face communicates, accepts and rejects, approves and condemns, welcomes and denies, dances and mourns. So if you are interested in this topic, interested in these these uh, these questions, then you can go to searcyinstitute.org slash fall 2022. So fall 2022. And you can hear people like like Heidi White, Andrew Kern, Tracy Lee Simmons, Vegan Groin, and you could probably meet Ian there when he inevitably drops in with his helicopter. <laughs> well, he's so, giving um, me a ride. Guess what right. I'm speaking on, David? Uh, Duty and Desire? Your favorite book. It has face in the title. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Till we have faces. Till we have faces. I love how often that comes up. Yeah. You should have we should have started with that. Heidi's talking about till we have faces at this event. At the face conference. <laughs> Heidi, yeah, at the face Heidi, conference. Even if I can't make it, will you send me your talk? Oh yeah, sure. I totally okay, cool. will. 
Awesome. Love it. <laughs> Although I am counting right. on you to give me a ride in yeah, like your hot air balloon or whatever. Yeah, how's she gonna how's she gonna get there now? Like hot air balloon's yeah. probably cheaper than a helicopter, I think. Less I don't know. less uh controllable slower. though, I feel like. Yeah, a little slower. Probably like not quite as friendly in storms. Okay, speaking of storms, the gentleman in Moscow, because in this book, we've got a character who is gonna be in the in this hotel. For like the duration of his adult life. He's 30 years old when this book starts. Well, at least until about, the regime change. And he's about to watch the uh, the world change all around him. The storms of Russian history in the 21st century uh, rage outside his window. As I mentioned, this is from 2016. It's a New York Times bestseller. And uh, he got the idea. Heidi, did you know this? He got the idea. You're going to like this. For uh, He was uh, working in finance and he would travel around the world a lot. And he would stay at these luxury hotels, must have been nice, specifically in Geneva, Switzerland. Huh. So he got the idea for this book from a hotel he stayed at in Geneva. I'm now wondering if it's the same hotel that you stayed at when you were in Geneva. Um, but you'll have to tell us a little bit about that. But now, but what it makes me realize though is that having just stayed in a hotel in Geneva and mm-hmm. eaten at a Michelin starred restaurant, you can explain to us everything about this book. You have lived the experience. Of of living of of the of Rostov in this book, so we're going to count on you to um to to tell did, us what it's what, like. Did you eat at a Michelin starred restaurant? Two of them, actually, three actually. Dude, Six total stars, dude. Like, dude, talk yeah, about was, life goals. Those are major life goals. Pretty awesome, and I mean, I don't want to get all gentlemen in Moscowy, but you should see the <laughs> wine cellar at this. She, they had a whole. She doesn't want to so get gentlemen in Moscow on yeah. the Gentlemen in Moscow podcast. I wish you would. <laughs> yeah. They had a whole so turn, which so turn wine actually comes up in today's readings. Yeah, it does. And he, the, and, yes, when the bishop offers him a so turn with his fillet of soul, which of course is ridiculous. Come on, it is not done. Baudelaire. <laughs> Good but lord. Anyway, there's a so turn is the most rare and expensive wine in the world, and um, mm. they have. At, at our hotel in Lucerne, they had a whole Sauterne wine cellar dedicated to Sauterne. It was just, my head almost flew off my body. It was pretty great. So um, That's anyway, Geneva's lovely. You wouldn't have had a face if your head fell off your body. I know. See what I did there? See, See? what I did? Yep, full circle. <laughs> Thirstyinstitute.org slash fall 2022. <laughs> so, okay. I want to I wanna ask you a question about this book, Heidi. In the email that I sent out with the reading schedule, and today we're going to talk about through page 53. I mentioned that some of the reviews, like largely the reviews are very glowing on this book. People really like this book. But one of the reviews, which was overall positive, called this book relentlessly charming. And I don't think, I think it was Constance Grady at Vox. I think mm-hmm. that's who it was. I don't know that she necessarily meant that as a total compliment. And this book, people have, as with any book, people have varying degrees, like varying mileage with this book. For some people, the the voice the emphasis on like high culture, all those sorts of things can be a little bit uh, grating. Now, yeah. yeah now, now we know how. Now we know that you are bougie, right? That's been something yeah. that has been well, <laughs> well, uh, well founded here on the podcast. But I'm curious, as we get going, I just kind of want to put this out there. How do you feel about that relentlessly charming nature? You talked about how you like the mm-hmm. book, uh, you like his writing in particular, and also how you. Um, like Michelin starred restaurants. So I'm just curious <laughs> how you approach that, that, that element, that kind of right. aspect of this book that sometimes people find a little bit grating. And I'm wondering also before I finish here, sorry, long question. Do you think that that 
this is going to be the question for the whole reading for both of you. Do you think that that sense of that voice, that relentlessly charming aspect is something that he is doing on purpose or something that he can't help doing? Yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's a great question. Uh, I think I'll answer the last question first. I think he's absolutely doing it on purpose because the whole novel takes on the tone of the, of the protagonist uh, who isn't the narrator, but we get such an inside glimpse of him. I mean, the book really is about Rostov's inner life and, Mm. uh, and how, and French wine. And yeah. And, and it is about high culture as well. Uh, it's a, but it's a mournful book. It's a book that's mourning the loss of tradition, uh, contrasting with kind of this relentless, I'll use the the word, um, optimism and, uh, just kind of this cheerful stoicism that Rostov is determined to assume. Um, he's an idealized version, the perfect aristocrat. He really doesn't falter. Um, and some people find that a bit off-putting or relentlessly charming. Tolls unapologetically doesn't undercut him. And mm. he's and 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 in, and because of that, it does have a quality of this relentless charm. For two reasons. One, I think it's the writing itself. Um, it's it's so polished. It's so precise. Uh, and I mean, this Tolls knows how to write a sentence and every single sentence is like as high quality as the one before. And so it kind of does have this, um, it takes you up a level <laughs> um, and this like really like taut string the whole time because his writing well, also is so making tight. it seem easy yes yes but you're always aware and i think that that i think is some for for people who write like us we might find that just wonderful and delightful like i love the fact that every sentence is of like the highest quality. Um, but I also think that that could potentially be off-putting the same way a life full of French wine uh, in a fancy hotel is unrealistic and off-putting, right? Um, and so I think that the the writing itself and then also the content of the book is about, it does have this mourning to it, but it's also an idealized version of a sophisticated life. And it is intentionally and self, I'm going to adverb an adjective here. (laughs) It is self-awarely so. Like it knows, the book knows that it's doing that and is doing it on purpose and kind of making, throwing out a gauntlet. Like, hey, this is, this is the aristocratic lifestyle in a democratic world. Are you going to stumble over it? Are you going to embrace it? Mm. Ian, as somebody who is um, whose life goals are to eat at a Michelin starred restaurant <laughs> and who is like me, perhaps more wannabe bougie than actually bougie, do you um, how swing do you, low proletariat charity? How, how do you <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about the um, this aspect of the book? Man, it, it's hard for me to come up with something more to say than what Heidi just said. That was well, but really like you eloquent. like you like this sort of celebration of I do, but um, I think. I think what it so the everything she said about the writing style, yes, me too. Also, just like put quotes around all of that. Um, but I also think that when it comes to the subject matter, there's a meditation on the connection between, and then also the division between pleasure and joy. Um, the connection between and the division C.S. Lewis between pulling it coming out there and you. Yeah, right. Like, um, there's a difference between pleasure and joy, and he's writing about that. There's a difference between cheerfulness and joy, and he's writing about that. Like, it almost seems like he's 
he's asking some questions about what a good life is and setting it in this um, gilded cage where he wants for nothing. The count wants for nothing, except he wants for everything at the same time. And how can that be? Right. I think it's almost, it's almost pitched at, uh, at people who, who don't have all of the things that the count has. Um, and I, maybe one of the questions that the book is, is asking us, similar to what Heidi just said, are you going to stumble? Like, are you the guys on which floor is it? I can't remember that are there like doing the work of this revolution. Like, are you one of those guys? Are you one of those guys who's going to eat in the cafeteria instead of in the Michelin starred restaurant on principle? <laughs> or are you the little girl yeah, who's going to say, Hey, give me the rules for being a princess because yeah. really what I want in life is to eat at Michelin starred restaurants and drink French wine. So that, I, I don't know if that's a super specific answer to your question, but. So what, what questions do you think this book is asking? Heidi, how would you like, what are the, or at least what are the questions that this book is asking that you are most interested in? Yeah. I, I think what Ian said is really like profound what he said about is it possible how is it possible to have everything and yet have nothing and what the one of my favorite things about this book especially in the contemporary literary landscape and this cultural moment is that tolls unapologetically gives us a hero of the story who is who rises to the occasion <laughs> um and is brave and dutiful and kind and is but i think one of the one of the questions that that the book raises for sure is is a long forgotten question it's actually centuries old right in western culture which is does an aristocratic does an aristocrat ha have access to virtues that the common man does not because of the fact that he has more? Right? Yeah, um, well, and it's also, sorry to interrupt, but it's also yeah, vice versa, right? Exactly. Does the commoner have access to virtues that the aristocrat doesn't? By yes. virtue of their station. It's a very class conscious book. Yeah. And, and, and in a society that's intentionally avoiding that question. Like we will do anything to not ask ourselves. Is you it mean our possible? society? Yes, our society yeah. is like we'll do anything to avoid the question mm -hmm. of access to resources might make you a better person. Yeah, and is that and this this book takes it on, and it's the answer is pretty complex throughout the book, um, mm. and we and also it's asking I think what makes the count what makes Count Rostov heroic is it the fact that he's an aristocrat or is there some kind of um transcendent kind of moral guiding principle in his life that that transcends his class but is somehow manifested in any way like it's so it asks a lot of these these questions hmm. and it asks the question and i think answers it pretty definitively of the role of tradition in society and in the individual hmm. um and so that that is unequivocally to tolls and to this book is yes, tradition matters, but it does right. raise yeah. the question. If you look at tolls as sort of the three book canon so far, if I can call it a canon, he is constantly referring back to Homer and Shakespeare and like not Montaigne. just old wine. Yeah. Montaigne, not just old wine and good food, but all the elements of all the different kinds of things that define culture. Mm -hmm. And he is creating this, he is at least referring to the, the various points throughout history that have led to the point that 
his characters are living in now mm-hmm. um, or living in the early 20th century when all his books take place. That you can't, you can't look at civilization in 1920 or 1950 or whatever and not, not also look back and say, this is how Homer and this is how a hundred-year-old French wine all have helped create the world we right. live in now, sometimes for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. So given all of that, why do you think this book is so popular now? Like it was a New York Times bestseller. It's the most requested book we've ever had on Close Reads. Really? Um, yeah, just in terms of people asking for books. It's been out. I people have mentioned it since cool. 2016 when it came out. And it kind of came to a head last year. And I was like, okay, we gotta do we gotta do this. So, you know, it's it, it's still one of the things that I sell most consistently in the bookstore, like a backlisted title that I sell weekly, you know, and that's like for a book that's older, like I know it's only six years old, but that in the book, the publishing industry, that's kind of old. Like, why why has it held such a firm grasp on the contemporary imagination? Why do people keep telling their friends to read it? Why I'm rambling a little bit here just to give you a chance to think. Why do um, <laughs> why do people love this book about an aristocrat in Russia who has been locked in a hotel? There's not like I don't. This is not a huge spoiler, but there's not like there's not like a lot of gunfights that are going to happen in this book. And there's not like any like. There's not a lot of steamy romance stuff, stuff in it. Like, you know, the things that would typically make, it's not a murder mystery. I, I, you know, I've been fascinated by the popularity of this book and like a little bit happy about it. So I'm just curious about why you think that is. Ian, you want to go first on that? Did I give you, did I ramble long enough? Sure. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit at a disadvantage here in relationship to Heidi because I've, I haven't actually finished the story. Um, well, that's why I asked so, you first. But in these first couple of chapters, um, I think, I think there's a, there's a shallow reason for starters, which is that, boy, that would be nice. You know, like on the one hand, like Tull sets out to say, to say to us, Hey, this is imprisonment. And then he kind of winks and puts you in a, in a Michelin starred restaurant. And in, I think to the, to, especially to the modern day American, especially in the middle class, we look at that and we go some prison, right? I'll take your prison over my reality, bro. Um, So I think that's part of why it is like, it does feel like taking a trip in the very best sense to somewhere kind of magical and a little foreign and filled with luxury. Um, on the other hand, so like an escape from an escapism perspective, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. And then also I think the decision to set it in Russia amid Russian aristocracy or the dregs of it anyway, was a smart one. I mean, who's not obsessed over the Anastasia. I mean, like there's a lot there, there's stuff coming out. Do you guys see that show? The Romanovs. Did you watch that? Yeah. But by, by uh, Matthew Weiner dug it. I thought it was really fun. But anyway, this is an obsession of ours. Like Russian history is an obsession um, in, in modern America. So that's probably, that's probably the main reason. But as a, as a lover of literature myself, the non shallow version of an answer to the question is I got to keep reading. Like his writing style has me by the ears and I can't, I can't look away. It was so hard to stop at page 53. It was so Hmm. hard. You know, you, you can go ahead. It's okay. I know. I know. It's just a rule I set for myself. like to encounter it all fresh. But anyway, I think that's maybe the huge, a huge reason for it. it um, I feel similarly about, uh, and the author's name is escaping me, All the Light We Cannot See. Anthony Doerr. Uh, yeah, Doerr. Dor. Yeah, yeah. I feel similarly about Doerr's writing to to how I feel so far about, about Tolls. Um, it's, that's a really interesting comparison that came yeah. up kind of roughly the same time too. Yeah, and I, I think there's maybe a little more action in All the Light We Cannot See, but but again, the reason I was still reading is because, man, this this guy is such a stylist. He's such yeah, a stylist. Yeah, and you know, that's a great point. And I think that contemporary style in writing, there's a sort of uh, simplicity to it that is really valued, and you there's not a lot of complexity often in the writing. And so I think when you combine 
that escapism with a true sense of style, everybody can recognize that and say, okay, this guy's got a unique voice and he's got an ability to put words one after the other in a mm-hmm. compelling way. Heidi, what do you think of the I think I think it's I think what Ian said, I think it's what he said is true. Like he's this book is popular for the same reason Jane Austen is popular. Good comparison. There's a there's two things going on. One is the aspiration, this this lack that we have in our culture of any kind of like formalized or ritualized living for its own sake. And uh, and um for there's there's like kind of a, a shame in living the good life and and th- these are books mm. that hold them that up as an ideal and i i think that that's appealing to a modern uh i also think that it helps us grieve what we have lost as well as aspire to something that we can build for ourselves in some way and just gives us a, a framework for for understanding a, a more um, dutiful and prescribed life and, and living vicariously through the characters in the novel, knowing that, you know, nobody, nobody is formally inviting me for a tea party. Instead, I'm going to meet them at Starbucks for coffee and drink out of a paper cup, burned coffee, right? Like that's... <laughs> hey, hey, lay off a of Starbucks and, over there. <laughs> um, <laughs> They have to roast everything so dark. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> no, see that I, coming. I do agree with you. It's just from my state. I yeah. gotta have some kind of Washington right. State pride here. Yeah. Um, so I well, think don't that make it that. I, <laughs> you are. You. I have this. You can root for the Seahawks. That's fine. Okay. So I think that that's some Thanks. of it. And then I just think it's it's a book that's sophisticated and snappy and cool, but not over anybody's head. Like there is enough mm. depth to carry the book, but it's light enough that literally anybody can read and love this book. And 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 I think it's an, the book has so many allusions to other literary works. David, you said this is a very literary book, which is true. And I think that it it opens up a world of just and and it makes it inviting instead of pretentious. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Along the lines of what you were saying about the protagonist and living vicariously through him also, it isn't just the trappings of wealth that I think are instinctively attractive to us as human beings. It's also nobility, the idea of nobility. We want to be noble. And I think probably we could have a long conversation about the fact that that's because nobility is written into our hearts because we were born in the image of God and so on and so on and so on. But suffice it to say, there's a basic desire to be noble and he gives us that opportunity by putting us in the head of this protagonist. Um, and, and I think he uses that to invite us, look harder, look deeper, because we got to decide what nobility is before we try and achieve it. Mm-hmm. And it isn't, it isn't necessarily bearing in bloodline. There's something else to it. And right. to what extent is it habit? To what extent is it attitude? To, like, that's, that seems to be in the meditation. Breeding, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it raises so many interesting questions through Rostov. And like, I think that the, the scene in the barbershop is very compelling. Yeah. Um, and that. When he gets his mustache, mustache cut Yes. Off. Because, Super cool. Yes. Because Rostov, I mean, Rostov comes out, um, comes through that with honors, right? Like he is undoubtedly the better man. Um, but is it. You know, why? Like, these are the questions that were asked throughout the novel. It can't just be because he eats and drinks well. That's ridiculous. So there's- Well, and it's not because of his mustaches either. 
Right. Which is so different from Hercule Poirot. Um, right. but, he, but he he wins that because he admits that he was wrong. Because there's something more to him than his bourgeois life. Like there is something more. There's something poignant. He has suffered greatly. Um, he's the end of an era and yet he's fully entrenched within that era. So he's constantly grieving. Um, but there is, he also has like a greatness of soul to him, which is the question of the book is how, why, right? And and why does someone with a great soul want to drink great wine? Maybe there's Ooh. something to the quality of the life that that nourishes and comes from great virtues as well. Um, or are they just the trappings, right? Like, so the book raises these really interesting questions about, yeah. about the soul and about uh, nobility. Like you said, I really like that word in honor. Um, and I love the fact that he keeps trying to read Montaigne and he can't, he finds it really boring. Like, <laughs> no, it's great. Because he's in such a similar right? experience like, with Montaigne. Yes, <laughs> yes right. I mean, Montaigne's really hard to read, but he's, the point is he's not an intellectual. Uh, he's an esthete. And the book seems to be asking, like, is, is that aesthetic part of him coming from his great soul or is it merely just the trappings of his aristocratic life? Right. I guess the, uh, to add to that as well, maybe what we're missing is a discussion of what gives a life purpose. Right. Because I, I think you're right. There's that tension between the trappings and the substance of being a great soul. But but what? Like, let's talk about this poem. Can we can we talk about the poem that precedes the the novel that's supposedly from the count? Right. Um, David, you look like you were planning. Yeah. You were planning that all along. Um, it's about purpose. Right. It's about purpose. And when did purpose leave and where is where is it to be found? And I think it's really interesting that he ends it by saying not in the things of this physical world and not in works of the imagination. Right. It's not in Vronsky's saddlebags. It's not in Sonnet 30, stanza one. And then it's not in it's not in pleasure. It's not in gambling. Right. It's not on 27 red. Like I so I guess my question to you, Heidi, would be and you because you've read the whole you've read the whole novel. Does he at this stage at the end of page 53 already have a great soul or has he just been put in a situation that will grant him one? In other words, does he enter with all the trappings and the development that we're going to see from him is a greatness of soul coming upon him through, you know, through what? Through imprisonment, through through having to live in a cage and what that does to a person or does he bring a great soul in with him and is is Toll's going to use that to comment on the class war that's going on and the the difference between aristocracy aristocracy and nobility and so on and so forth i think it could be both but i, I that's a valid question from my perspective well it's interesting to think about the characteristics that Toll's is, is revealing of rostov already like we know that he is well mannered we know that he is uh, he is committed to his habits, right? We know that he is well dressed. That he has a lot of knowledge about aesthetic things, and he has a lot of knowledge about the world in general. He can be polite even when he's not in a bad mood. He's not likely to turn to violence. Like there's a lot of these different characteristics, and so that that he is revealing to us a lot of those are things that although not put on display by everybody of the high you know high class you know not every count is going to have these these displays they are virtues that would have been accepted as 
worthy by by the high class. So, given all that, I think that's just. I think the question stands like, what do you think, Heidi? Like, given those things that he has revealed about him so far, do you think he already has this this great soul, and that's that it's the great soul that is going to carry him on his journey, or is it a journey toward great souledness, greatness uh, of soul? I don't. And I, also, does the right. fish have anything to do with this? <laughs> is that an, is that a, is that a direct allusion to to why to the you think? soul? Is that a is that a why? Mm. I mean, of course, we caught that. Um, there's so many allusions. I'd like the soul to think, was yes. what's the line from Brideshead? Yeah. The soul was so unobtrusive that Rex failed to notice it. Yeah. Um, oh, so good. Also so talking good. about a fish. Also, yeah, yeah. Yep. A flave soul, and but so, also not right. Mm-hmm. I guess I think that he is already has a capacity and has chosen his way. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning he's by this time he has decided like, I am going to go into my gilded cage and never come out. And I am determined to maintain my identity and become better, right? Like he's, he's set his course. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, as the book will show that is not, that's a fraught journey for him, but Mm -hmm. it's one that's already been chosen. So Hmm. no, he is not yet what he will become, but he's chosen his way. I, and I just like admire that. I, I, I love like the flawed hero journey. I'm not opposed to that, but there's something so refreshing about a central character who is duty driven and good and maintains the course. He has a um, core about him that you can yeah. turn to like as a, as a lodestar. Yes. Mm. Character and is a man of character. An, yes. And there's an aspirational quality. Like most, a lot of audiences have been so trained in, in modernity to expect uh, to, to expect flawed, like these like morally flawed heroes and, 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 the, and feel like that's the only way to write a good story. That's not, <laughs> it's not the only way to write a good story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot when we, the three of us, when we did Lord of the Rings, um, it's just as good of a story to tell about a good person who mm-hmm. stays good. And, you know, the, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune you know either way is good like there's there's great stories on either side of the coin like there's hamlet obviously is a great hero too but there's something very refreshing to me about this book and then that it's like that that he is a dutiful man who who stays the course in a hard Mm. life i would wonder how this book would be different if it was written in a if it was set to take place in a different time or a different place yeah, because it's not really very Russian to your point. Like there's <laughs> Yeah, I mean could it yeah. could it be English during Oliver Cromwell's time or in New York City in the sixties? It's such a good question. And I was thinking about that a lot because I was um I listened I'm listening to Poor the Rome audiobook. during Nero. Right. I was listening to the audiobook today. I was cooking and I was like, I have, I am living my dream right now. I'm making this like really nice meal while listening to gentlemen in Moscow in my quiet house. I'm like, this is the life. <laughs> and, um, but the, 
But the mm-hmm. narrator, of course, has this like a very sophisticated British accent because right. we in America think that anything high class has to be read in a British accent. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, 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 and that's just what we think. And it always works. And but a gentleman in Moscow is not British. It's literally Russian, but mm. it feels very it actually feels more British. Hmm. Like just the, the even he's an American, but Holes is an American, but like the it was so fitting. It took me a while to realize the discrepancy that I were reading this, like that that the narrator that the reader a, was English. A stiff upper lip sounds really good in a British accent. <laughs> right. But could it have been why why was it not a gentleman in, in London? Well, partly because the Bolsheviks didn't take over London. And the whole point is the crumbling of a culture. The whole point is that he's embedded within his culture. He's an aristocrat within his culture and everything is being undercut around him. Everything that he has been raised to, to, to be a steward of, to care for and to be supported and cared for by is now gone in a stroke. And so maybe Russia is the only option. So one question I've had about this book then is how much of it is sort of about an abstraction like the idea that cultures crumble and there's people who are left to pick up the pieces and preserve what they can, as opposed to not being an abstraction and being about a particular time and place. That's a great question. Like, yeah. does it go ahead? Like, is it a is that how much of this book is about Russia crumbling and how much of it is about like you could sort of substitute, you know, this is this is what he knows. He's able to he, he's able to write about what he knows and what he loves. But how, I mean, you know, could it be, could it be about any civilization that's crumbling and somebody who's trying to preserve it, regardless of whether they're like a Russian count? Ian, you were going to say something, I think. No, I'm just chewing. I mean, I think it's important. I don't think so. I think it has to be now for a couple of reasons. Number one, because what do you mean now? I mean, it has to be set where it is set, um, the way oh. that it, it has to be the way that it is. Uh, because, because first of all, um, this was a failed revolution. We know that now from the perspective, from the vantage point of, of history, we know that now. And, um, and I think it's important for us to realize in order to understand the conflict of the story, that his aristocracy is not the demon that, that his culture is making it out to be. The problem wasn't the, wasn't the aristocracy. The problem is always going to be a problem of character, the character of people in power. Um, and so I don't know. I think it's important that it's set here. Um, I also think it's interesting that he calls it a gentleman in Moscow instead of an aristocrat in Moscow or a count in Moscow or whatever else you want to say, because because I do think he's taking up the question of aristocracy and how much of it has to do with character traits and how much of it has to do with breeding, like Heidi and I have been on about. Um, my suspicion is if this is the work, if this work has the stature, I assume it will, it's going to end up being more about character than than breeding. I think he's right about that. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting book. Like I I remember when I was reading it the first time, there's all of these like kind of long and rambling internal monologues he has about like the of what it means to be Russian. Like in this section, it's about the duels, right? Are there like is dueling why what made dueling such an important part of of Russian culture? And he kind of goes on and on about that. Later he'll go on and on about Tchaikovsky and and vodka and other things um that are stereotypically Russian mm-hmm. um for outsiders like us, including the author of this book. 
Um, right. I was going to ask a question about that, but go on. <laughs> about it from within the culture, from as Rostov, but it feels to me as I'm reading them, like musings that the author had that he found a place to kind of put right um and maybe talk to like i'm sure he did his research he's a great novelist like he, he talked to russian people he, he read these kinds of things um but there's so much uh intentional like care from the author to make this russian to like place it within its cultural context um, but it doesn't feel Russian at all. Even the conversations about dueling, even the, it, it's, it's a very Western novel. Mm. And so I, I, I'd like to think that that's intentional on Toll's part, that he's self-aware that he knows what he's doing. I think it creates kind of this interesting, paradoxical, uh, contradictory kind of vibe to the book that I like. Um, but I'm not always sure whether he is trying to anchor it and make it Russian or whether it's intended to kind of be a fable about tradition losing everywhere. And these are kind of like the local color touches. I'm not sure. Hmm. Ian, you said you had a question though. You wanted to... Yeah, I was... Ba- it, Heidi more or less just just um, said it in the form of a statement okay. rather than a question. But I like, it doesn't feel Russian. I just finished War and Peace. It doesn't feel Russian. No doesn't feel Russian at all. And so I guess I have the same question. Like, is he borrowing here? And if so, why this? And maybe that's again, because of the injustice or like him being confined to this hotel is an injustice. We love feeling injustice. We love it. It's one, it's one of the most addictive things a human being can possibly feel (laughs) to feel persecuted among all other persecuted peoples. Like that's, that's what we're after. And so I think in that sense, it's a great hook to get me involved in the, in, in the, inner life of this character. And maybe that's all he attended. It's also very colorful, but, um, but I don't know. I think that is a really good question. I, I want to finish the book does, so I can, have does it answer. matter? No, I think it really, that it's not it. Russian. No, does it? I, it I think it wouldn't even work. Like there's plenty of Russian, like really, truly Russian contemplation. I mean, we just read Loris. So, right. um, and yeah. ha- which asked the same question. What does it, what and is Anna the Russian Karenina. soul? I mean, we've read what, Crime yes. and Punishment. And, yeah. Yes. What is the Russian soul other than snow and suffering? Right. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and that, what does it mean to be Russian? And the book asked, does seem to ask that, but it, it seems the book seems more concerned with the, with the deeper question of character versus breeding that, that, yeah. that you talked about, Ian. I'm glad to hear that. That makes me really even more excited to read it. I'm enjoying the setting. Like I said, I think it's mm-hmm. beautiful and engaging, but, um, but yeah, that's going to be a good conversation. Mm-hmm. So the book begins in 1922, which is the year the Soviet union was formed. The Russian, I guess the Russian revolution was till what? Like 19, 1917. But oh, and then they Stalin's had, death, yeah, in the 50s, right? So the Soviet Union Ish. formed in 2020, 1922, and like some parts of the revolution, I think, went like I think like the Russian Civil War maybe was still in 1923 or something. So this is kind of like, like there's a lot of turmoil, obviously, in this period, and there it's after the World War One, and then we're about to hit, you know, we're gonna hit World War Two and the conflict and the Cold War and all those sorts of things, and and he's gonna be watching all of this happen, and so. Heidi, do you think that this is a book given that like he's very specific about it being 1922, right? As the Soviet Union is forming. To what degree should we read this book as any form of 
I was going to say historical commentary, but that's like a little bit, I don't really mean it quite that way, but like how much does the, like how much do you care about historical accuracy or being able to comment on actual historical events or reasons these things happened or um, like, does that, is that something that's we should care about? And if it doesn't accurately treat them or effectively treat them, given the complexity, the complexity of the Russian revolution, given the complexity of the Soviet union, given the last hundred years of, Russian history, if it doesn't treat those things um, effectively, should we, should we, should it be criticized for that? Right. I, I think it's a good question. I mean, I think we have plenty of novels that take that on directly. That is in many ways, the background of this novel, um, not the foreground. And, and I think we have to remember that it's important background. Like it is the background that creates the conflict of the story, which is why is, which is him in the hotel. Um, but it's, this novel is much more it about, like, it's not like a gulag novel, right? Um, this is, right. I, this is yes. Like this is a novel about what it felt like to watch his nation like the bottom drop out of his his country and and so it's it's a much more of an internal journey for our character for our main character which is why i think it works more effectively that it's that it's not a gulag novel he's not like he's not in the gulag he's not he's not experiencing that kind of suffering, which is admittedly far more intense than what Rostov is going to go through in A Gentleman in Moscow. Um, but because he's not in such intense physical anguish and, and mental and spiritual anguish, he is uniquely poised to observe and experience what it was like for the ordinary man and the more privileged person to lose everything. And, and what that felt like and what that does to him in his little world. Like, it's very important that this is a gilded cage, that it's a very small world with very narrow borders and with, and that he's not physically suffering, but he's mentally and emotionally experiencing a very profound loss. Um, and so therefore all of these things are going on in the background and they directly impact him, but it's not a description of that. It's not a, the book isn't a description of that experience. Um, it's more his personal journey through it. Mm -hmm. Ian, how much do you know about the, I like, are you well read on the Russian revolution? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, it, it's, it's this actually, maybe I'm speaking for a bunch of homeschoolers here. And if so, y'all are welcome, but, uh, <laughs> we don't, a lot, many of us have pretty terrible, uh, 20th century history. We spend a lot of time with the ancients and not a lot of time in, in the modern era. So, um, so yeah, I've got some holes there for sure. Um, but I wanted to add something to what Heidi just said too. I think my instinct is at this stage, 53, you know, pages in, to avoid making the count too much a symbol of his society. And maybe this is just due to my own scenario. I mean, I work from home and have my whole career. Um, my cage is not gilded quite as finely as, uh, as the counts, but nevertheless, I never leave. I mean, uh, really and truly like I, I am stuck here at home all the time and there's not a whole lot of physical privation going on. And yet I am a torment to myself, right? Not to make it too real on the air, but like, when you are alone with your thoughts all of the time 
to make meaning of your days is up to you to make pr- productive things out of your days is up to you. Like, I think one of the conflicts going on here is a conflict where he is now trapped with himself and, and he's trying to decide all of the questions, the questions of identity, the questions of purpose for himself. And that is brutal. That is suffering. Mm. That's a form of suffering. Um, yes. So I, I agree with what Heidi said that it's important that this is a gilded cage. It's important that it be comfortable because there is a kind of suffering that comes from never wanting. And, um, and that to me is a uniquely modern problem. Mm-hmm. Human beings have had a harder time for all of human history. And then there's us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, I just feel like it's a, um, this book is really well tuned to talk to people in exactly our era with our set of of problems with the ennui that afflicts us, right? And there is a lot of writing, a lot of social psychology that that claims that people were significantly happier in the Middle Ages than we are now. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, um, they had less, but they were much, much happier. When they didn't have dysentery, Um, they were very happy. Yeah, but they also, like, there was a, like, one of the things that people have written about is that there was a degree of contentment. Yeah. Like, your expect when your expectations were different, it was easier to be content. Like, you know, what's the line from the princess bride? Life is uh, suffering. Life is pain. Life is pain. And uh, they were much better at suffering Mm -hmm. because they didn't expect not to suffer. Right. And like the ability to be good at suffering or like be content and even perhaps joyful in the face of suffering Mm. is uh, I think a pretty profound thing that we as a contemporary Westerners in particular are like pretty bad at. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a, that's a spiritual question. Yes. You know, so, okay. We're at an hour. Do we want to do a, do, Heidi, do you want to give us a quick, uh, a quick lecture on um, the grassroots community assemblies that became called Soviets that were formed and how they were led by urban industrial proletariats and what that <laughs> meant for the farmers and oh how that gosh, impacted the uh, prominent capitalists as well as the Russian nobility and aristocracy and how Tsar Nic- uh, Nicholas decided to step down and it didn't really work. And then how it ultimately led to economic collapse. And there was um, a lot of mutinies and, and then uh, various factions, and then eventually. the Bolsheviks had to compete with them, and then eventually World War II happened, and then now we're in 2022. You want to talk about all that, or is like, no, I do not. I don't want to talk about that at all. But cool. Can I we do agree want, to skip that part? <laughs> I do want to read novels that tell me about it and how it felt, right? And I do want. I think my. I don't know if we're done, and this is my final thought, but I think what. Ian, I think what you just said is really significant about your, how there's, there's something more about Rostov than, than him being a gentleman in Moscow. Like there is, mm-hmm. th- this is a, I, I really, I really believe that Tolls wrote this as an allegory to the modern man. Like, I think he wrote this to speak to you in mm-hmm. your house, right. right? Me in my house, like, <laughs> yeah. um, David in his man cave and bookstore. Like it is, it is to his writing <laughs> shed. What do you call it? That's better. He shed? Shed? I, it's a he I shed. call, I call it the, um, I call it a work in progress. <laughs> WIP. Um, I'm going to put a sign on it that yeah. says that, oh, the whip. The, uh, this Rostov is, I mean, Rostov is you and me. Mm-hmm. He is the modern man, which is another reason I think it's important that it is Russian because this is, I, I think that the Bolshevik revolution is 
such a, um, a powerful, like we just need to never forget it. Right. Um, it's, uh, it, it really is just such a powerful, I don't like small cosmology of what happened to, of, of modernity, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That there's this corrupt aristocracy and it was truly, there were some, like some, some very deep and terrible injustice, uh, in, in, in the Russian. Yeah. There the was an nation. illness in the core yes. of the, like it was yeah. sick. Yeah. And, and then the Bolsheviks were somehow able to take over, I think to their own surprise. Um, and, and then, and then just did exactly what Robespierre did. Like it was just a, a reign of terror, just leveling everything that made Russia Russian intentionally by their own people. And we'll see that in gentlemen in Moscow in some really powerful ways, like the attempt um, successfully and unsuccessfully to completely make Russia an utter blank slate. And, and especially for the young generation. And now we have a young character in the novel. We have Nina. She's mm. young. And so far and my favorite character, by the way. She's delightful. <laughs> she's so great. Right? She's but she's a Russian child at the time of of the revolution and is now becoming Ross interested in princesses. Friend, yeah. Right. Exactly. Princess I? Um, so there is pathos and poignancy and loss and mourning and grief in this book very deeply. So, um, and, and Rostov is, as you said, he has everything his, his belly needs, right. But a man is not just a belly. And that is a very important part of this book. And you, you just brought up something really important, which is purpose and, and memory. Um, and so, and, 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 Rostov is a robust man. Like he's a very masculine character and now he just lives in a hotel room. Like, so there's, there's, this is not a lighthearted book. There's, there is a great depth to it. And, and I think we'll all be able to find ourselves in Rostov's journey and, and, and I hope aspire to meet it with his same like lion's heart. So, Ian, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I just second. I second all of that. Well said, Heidi. Um, this the, I had the thought as I was reading. This book reminds me of a river. Um, it is beautiful, especially in the sunlight. It sparkles and it glitters, and you can't stop looking at it. But what does everybody want to do on a hot day when you look at a river? You want to dive, right? You want to go under, and that's how I feel about this. Like all of the all of the cultured overtones make me comfortable and make me, make me dazzled. And, and I want to hang out there and I can feel myself sinking um, into the real heart of things, which is where all of this conflict is landing for, for our, our protagonist. I mean, the count is Heidi said, he's not an intellectual. Uh, she knows more than I do having f- finished the novel, but right now I would certainly call him one because he isn't just thinking about his plight. He's actually thinking past it and through it and in it. And, seeking to do something about it. And so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a depth here that I'm really, really eager to, to try and plumb. Yeah. That'd be my last thought. One of the things that I'm really interested in in this book, reading it this second time is uh, the degree to which Rostov knows himself because there's the version of himself that he wants to be and thinks he's supposed to be based on his status and the things that he's sort of interested in. And then there's the version of himself, which 
he um, can be based on his limitations. And then there's the version of himself that he is without thinking, the instinctive version. And um, this is, I think all of these things are part of what makes, you know, large soul, large souls, right? Great souls. But, and then you've got the world kind of collapsing on him, impacting, impacting um, the choices that he makes and which of those kind of versions of himself show up in different moments. Um, we are going to read to the end of part one for next week. So that's going to take us to page 105. Uh, Heidi, anything else? Nope. What you cooking? Oh, so we're doing sous vide steak and scallops. And then I made this really good, I think, um, like a potatoes au gratin. And I simmered like thyme for my garden and garlic and heavy cream. I can't wait to eat it. You know, you know when you're like cooking something just and you're cause? like, I can't. Are you having people We're over? We're having or? people over for dinner tonight. Yeah. And panna cotta. Because oh. I was just in the mood. Dude. Blueberry lemon. I put a little lemon curd on there and some couple blue, fresh blueberries. So we're going to eat well. I'm excited. Can I it's my over? first like real meal I've cooked since school started. And kind of like feel like I'm getting back in my own skin a little bit after a couple weeks. Like... Ian talked about the greatness of the school year, but I always feel like I completely lose myself all September. So I'm like, do something to remind <laughs> yeah. yourself you're not just a teacher, That's you're great. a human. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, David. Go ahead. What are you? What wine are you drinking? Scott's going to pick up the wine on the way home, so I do good not man. know. Good man. I know I'm sure not. it'll be good. Scott, as you always say, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. And Scott That's is right. always Scott is a grizzly always. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a good way. In Scott a good way. Yeah. Is well, he and Scott gr- and I just had wine and dessert with David and Bethany this over yeah, the weekend. Yeah. It was so nice. Yeah, it was delicious. We hardly champagne. ever just hang out the four of us. So that was pretty. Yeah, great. it was great. All right, Ian. Well, um, if you start now, you, are there, you might be able to arrive in time for dinner. Uh, just get fire up that helicopter and fire up the make helicopter, your way. baby. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we are, get there for dessert. We are going to a county fair tonight. So See, my oh, dinner will that be like and that's so fun. Funnel, funnel cake, cake and fried ice cream. Cake. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> so, yeah. so fun thing about me. Maybe not a fun thing about me. And I, I, let me rephrase this. So, an extremely unfun thing about me. Hate funnel cake. What? what I I like love sweets major sweet tooth hate funnel cake. Why though? Like, what is it about it? I'm trying to imagine what's not to like. It's I feel like we bread. we might need to like cut that confession from the air. That's a little too real for the listeners. I don't know. I don't <laughs> so know. what do you eat at the? You fair? know what else? I hate cotton candy. I actually okay. Hate yeah, candy I'm not too. a fan you of cotton candy same, either. Same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. No, that's so, okay. But what do you eat when you go to the fair though? Like fried a, Snickers. For, what um, fried thing do you eat at the fair? You have to eat a fried thing. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, well, I live in the South, so you can literally get anything fried. So yeah. want a fried Oreo? Have that. Want a fried okay. burrito? Have that. Want to get a fried chicken sandwich? You can do that. I could probably get a Coke fried if I wanted to. Oh. Mm. At the fair a couple of years ago, they had fried butter. Like just slices of butter that they fried. Heck Yeah. <laughs> That's so terrible. I am. <laughs> I really like fried pickles. That's my favorite. Oh, fried thing pickles! Yeah, fried pickles. pickles. Oh, my I love favorite fried, fried pickles. Thing. Fried pickles so, are the best. Given that we're talking about fried things, I had a debate with someone recently. We're talking about like things that have been battered and fried, right? Yes. So, if you're talking about fried food, does French fries count? No, I I feel like it doesn't. But unless it, you're I'm at A and W, where they I'm do sure batter, it does. And fry. Well, I mean, then at like onion but then rings, it's just not special enough. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, because I, I was talking about fried food, like, you know, uh, things that are battered and fried. And I was like, yeah. just because you cook something in oil 
doesn't mean that you're frying it in the way that we're talking about. Like it's a different style of, at best, a different style of frying. We have really gotten far, far, far afield here. <laughs> this is what they're but here it's for. It's an man. appropriate conversation <laughs> for a gentleman in Moscow. Agreed. The best of the of of its okay. kind of something. I love when he called Nettle. By the way, loved that whole oh, scene. Yeah. That was yeah, so cool. One of the things you're going to discover is like his his one of his great strengths is his is his, his palate. palate. Yeah, uh, and it shows up again later. Um, okay, Heidi. You're Scott. You're you are getting wine, not Scott. Hypothetically speaking, Scott for some reason can't. He has um, broken his pinky and uh, <laughs> thus cannot hold it out. Uh, well, well, yeah, to get the wine, <laughs> right. and and okay. so he he is he is uh, unable. He is on the bench. He's been put on the wine buying injured reserve. So you have to do it. Um, what are you buying? Like what style? Like what's the? It has to be like under a hundred dollars. Like it has to be uh-huh. like reasonable and even you know like what do you what's the what's the the variety that's great if i was buying, buying something for a nice dinner like tonight for under a hundred dollars i i always go french and i'd probably get in a shot enough to pop um, which is a thing in this book yeah um scott actually likes like the the new world like he'll he's more, way more likely to pick up like a california cab or something like that um and i i definitely prefer old world wine and you so, want your wine yeah. to taste like to, to taste like a little dirt bit of dirt and rocks yeah. and yeah, grass same. dude yeah. i'm into okay that. that now let's say you, you have to get something that's yeah. under uh 30 what variety are you going for um, or even bottled, if you know a bottle. I would get a blend. Maybe I would get. I might. I might actually go California then, if I'm going under thirty, um, and maybe get a blend or try to get a cab. Um, if, since we're having steak, that's probably yeah. what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ian. Yeah. You're just going to the wine store and you're getting like, what's your go-to variety? Varietal. Well, I'm always shopping under thirty dollars. So well, Heidi's yeah, right. Blends are blends are a good move in that category. But if I were buying in the categories you're asking Heidi about, I would be looking for a single varietal Cap Franc or for a Petit Verdot. Because here I am close to Oregon. And they can literally grow anything down there. I mean anything. It's astonishing. So uh man. Well, they're known for their a, Franc and their Petit Verdot that are over there. Like yeah. there's I mean, there's they got that earthy potential. Dude, a Cab Franc with a steak is a really wonderful experience. It's pretty rare, though. Most people don't buy a Cab Franc as a single variety. Dude, it's I usually can find blended. Them. I can in find them up yeah. here. I really yeah. can. It's if, pretty awesome. What about like? Uh, I guess this is not very hip of me, but like, I like a good uh, Willamette Pinot mm-hmm. in oh, the yeah. valley. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and that goes Pino. with steak. It doesn't have that. Light. I mean, a, a, the Pinot Noir is just such a versatile grape, and for Molama, it's got it's a little bolder. So yeah, it doesn't. It's not like a yeah. light drinking wine the way a French Pinot is. Yeah, like I'm having the um, best time right now. I love I love talking about wine. Oh, it's, I love it. It's <laughs> it's still warm here. Like, it, and this time of day, my whip here, my work in progress uh, writing shed, the sun pounds through at about between four and six just comes right through the windows and it's very hot. And so right now, all I want is to have a chilled Sancerre because like 90% oh. of the time, it's like when it's warm, Heidi knows that I love. I know every time I drink Sancerre, I think of David, like there's not a single time, like I'll go, they have like a really good um, Sancerre on the menu at this 
like outside restaurant I go to a lot and oh, nice. I'll always order it and um and think about it. And I'm like, David would like this. So you can get a good Sancerre. Mm-hmm. Like you can't get a good Sancerre for 10 bucks, but you can get a really good Sancerre for like 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's not so, t- so turn. Well, so turn is actually not my favorite kind of wine. Like it's, it's thick just, and it's sweet. Yeah. I've never um, had that. I mean, it's delicious. Um, well, those are, and, and if you order a soul, don't get it. Yeah, it doesn't belong with soul. No, it needs something spicy, and it's it, it's a very. It's, Would you and actually? It for- I've only had it once in Switzerland because it's it's hard. Mm. It's hard. No, that's not true. I had a you Chateau had de Chem Sauterne, and yeah. for my first time in Switzerland, I've had I've had Sauterne a couple of times, but it's very sweet and thick, like honey, and so it's. The, the great part that I love about it is the story. And that's why I love wine. Um, yeah, the story, it, just, yeah. it has this amazing story to this, to this wine. Um, and maybe I'll There's talk a, about it. It's kind of like a, yeah. it's closer to like a port, isn't it? In some ways, like texture wise. Yeah. I mean, it's thick and it's, it's, I pr- think probably the most drinkable, um, like version of it. It's, it's a little bit like a mead. Mm. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so it's it's thick and sweet. Um, it's just way more complex than a mead, and it's it only grows in this tiny place in France. You can't grow it anywhere else in the whole world it's because of the microclimate. You can't grow it in a lab. You can only grow it in this little Sauterne Valley because of this mist that rises and it causes the grapes to rot and they throw away ninety percent of the grapes and they can only use ten percent every year. It's which just is why it's so expensive. Amazing story to this wine. So- What's the, what's the, isn't there like a California cab that you guys really like that has the same deal? Like where it's yeah, this microclimate? I mean, yeah. The Howell Mountain. Howell Mountain. Um, and uh, yeah. And but those Valley. kind of wines are not under $30. No, they're not. There's, there's because not they're, and it's, it's not to be pretentious. And I think this is, this is, this actually ties directly, I think, to gentlemen in Moscow. It's definitely possible to be someone who loves wonderful like high quality things because they and they become pretentious about it right for me i enjoy great french wine the the same way i enjoy a funnel cake because it's like the (laughs) best of things like and it has this amazing story to it and this whole culture to it yeah i wouldn't want to drink a fancy french wine walking around the fair i want to eat funnel cake it has a culture that's tied to this way of eating and drinking and and this story to it and and this like delightful kind of immersion into something out of the ordinary. And I I think that's what is so appealing to me about wine and about good food. But I also think like if, let's say I was like walking around the park, I would much rather have like a simple picnic than, than, than end my day at the park and go to a Michelin star restaurant. It's not (laughs) just because it's a Michelin star. It's because it has a culture and a story. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I love that. And so that's, what's so appealing to me about wine and food and about cooking and about funnel cake. And one of the things that's so important in this book is later on, like losing those stories when you don't preserve the thing itself is irreparable is a, is a huge thing like you you what the, the stories we tell about ourselves like the way we think about it the way we remember ourselves and the way we remember our stories is so important and one of the big ways that all people forever since the beginning of time have remembered their stories is by food either because you're gathered around the fire and in the oral tradition you're eating a, a wild boar and you're telling the story of like the iliad right and mm-hmm. that gets passed on from generation to generation or 
you are passing on your, you know, a lot of the way culture is passed on is by like food ways, right? Like you pass on the traditions of survival by passing on these notions of like how to prepare food. Um, and that's a huge part of even the American like story going back to the a thousand years to the native people. And this book really cares about that. I think that's one of the reasons why it matters. And maybe yes. one of the reasons why it's because we have not like, I live in Concord, North Carolina. I love the place that I live in the seventies. We came through, and we knocked everything down because we wanted to have things that were up to date, except for like some of the houses because the people were preserving the houses they were living. in. And so a lot of the Charlotte's known for this, right? Like a lot of places in the South, first of all, they got destroyed after the civil war. And that had this like impact, but then also now, now we're looking back and we're like, Oh man, I really wish we'd preserve these buildings. And so the only one of the only things we have is like these old recipes, right? Mm. And that's such a huge part of Southern culture because everything else has been destroyed. Yeah. And Southern culture is very fraught. And like slavery was is this great sin that we're, the impacts of which our entire culture is, is mm -hmm. still dealing that's with. Right. But that doesn't mean that some of the things that were destroyed and the stories that we had don't still matter. And so That's one right. of the only things that a culture, the easiest thing to pass on from a culture is it's food waste. Mm -hmm. And like, there's people who like, you know, there's a, there's a thing called, um, you know, I think it's called Anton Mills. I can't remember what it's called. Shoot. They're in South Carolina, but they're seed savers. They're seed preservers. And they have found hundred year old seeds that have seeds that have been passed on and they're planting them and they're growing Carolina gold rice and they're growing all these varieties of food. And like, that's the kind of food. That's the, that it's not just food preservation, or species preservation, it's cultural preservation. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, and this book matters because it's it's contemplating not just the preservation of this wine culture, but the preservation of all culture through its food ways. Um, and and like no matter where you live, that matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's right. And I think that I mean I think you've just given like a, a really beautiful description of the conservative vision of a gentleman in Moscow, not conservative in the ugly political way, but conservative in the sense of conserving what matters. Like it's, if they're like, if someone went through and burned down the vineyard, the Chateau de Chem vineyard, like you would lose vines that have been growing and producing grapes since the time of Eleanor of Aquitan. Right. Like, well, and and you it's, unbelievable the culture the history that's in this like bottle of wine and people look at it and are like who care who would pay a thousand which this is a valid question who paid thousand dollars for a bottle of wine like yeah. i would buy that one i mean i have never bought a bottle of chateau de kim but i would <laughs> because it's because it's the story like i'm holding in my hands and drinking a story of a culture that i think is worth investing in yeah, it's, you're it helping matters. when you buy that. You're helping preserve a, yes. a civilization, right? And that is huge. And Russia was like that. Like, and and at, with the Bolshevik Revolution, the things that were lost are absolutely irreplaceable. And there, we should grieve that. We should we should grieve that. We should grieve the loss of our culture, even though it's newer, right? Like, we should grieve what happened in the South, um, and not celebrate. The fact that not not celebrate and celebrate destruction because mm. our our yeah I just think it matters a lot and I think that that's what Amor Tolls is inviting us to see in a gentleman in Moscow. Mm. All right, we should probably wrap this up. We've been going a long time. Ian, you want to say anything else? No, I'm good. That was awesome. Loved it. Good to be back in <laughs> touch with you guys. Let's do more. 
<laughs> All right. Well, next week we're going to talk about the rest of part one. So uh, everybody, you know, you got a, got a week to do that reading. And in the meantime, we expect everybody to go find a good bottle of wine or, you know, a good bottle of cider or whatever, some funnel, funnel cake, cake, whatever, Woo! whatever, whatever piece of cultural preservation That's right. you want to participate in. We need to hear from you. So go ahead over to the Facebook page. Take a picture of whatever you're doing to preserve your culture and your foodways or some foodways somewhere. And we'll uh, we'll have a good time sharing all those sorts of things. I just thought of that idea right now and I think we should do it. <laughs> Brilliant. So Heidi, later on when Scott brings wine home, you got to post a picture of this meal that you made and uh, and the wine that he bought and you can you can kick it off. Uh, I wish I was cooking for you guys. <laughs> I do too. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds so good. All right. Well, Heidi, get back to it. Finish that meal. And uh, Ian, get back to being alone with your thoughts. For Ian Andrews and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern, who is also alone with his thoughts. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.